We argue from the starting point that what founders do is that they create the how and the why for the organization. And then each successor pivots themselves and positions themselves relative to that founder's frames. I think a visionary is best positioned to revitalize Al-Qaeda, but that doesn't necessarily indicate a visionary will appear. Because I think failure to understand that type of leader is a failure to really then tailor the counterterrorism, the appropriate counterterrorism approach against that group. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and my guests on this episode are Dr. Elizabeth Grimm and Dr. Tricia Bacon. Dr. Grimm is an Associate Professor of Teaching in Georgetown University's Security Studies Program, and Dr. Bacon is an Associate Professor in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Together, they also authored the recently released book, Terror in Transition, Leadership and Succession in Terrorist Organizations. This past summer, the death of Ayman al-Zawahiri in Kabul, Afghanistan, marked a significant and rare inflection point for Al-Qaeda. He was only the group's second leader in the more than three decades since its founding. That makes it a unique opportunity to take stock of Al-Qaeda's evolution and also explore the types of leaders at the helm of terrorist organizations. When Zawahiri succeeded Osama bin Laden, what kind of leadership model did he adopt and what did that signal about the organization's trajectory? And especially important now, what type of leader will replace Zawahiri and how should that inform U.S. counterterrorism policy? It's a really interesting discussion, but before we get to it, a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Elizabeth Grimm and Trisha Bacon. Liz and Trisha, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the MWI podcast. Thank you. We're really happy to be here with you today. Yes, definitely. Glad to be here. So we published an article that you, uh, the two of you co-authored. Uh, we published it at MWI uh, a few months ago, really just days after uh, the death of Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, the, at the time, Al-Qaeda leader. The article was fascinating. It sort of looked at what's next for Al-Qaeda, but it but it did so through this lens of the of five different types of terrorist leaders that, that the two of you have sort of identified. I wonder if we can, you know, we're going to talk about those five type uh, leadership types, but just to sort of kick off, I wonder if you can kind of describe, you know, when you, I guess, I don't know what time the news would have come through, but when you woke up that morning or when you, when you saw the alert on your phone and said Zawahiri was killed in Kabul, what were your first sort of reactions? <laughs> um, I think that Trisha was in a more interesting place than me, but I will say, you know, we started really an effort writing this book around the summer of 2018, right? And so this book has been in, in process and in writing for so long. And even when the book went to press, we didn't know if Zahir is alive or dead. In fact, the first several pages of the book are trying to discern the answer to that question, right? So is he alive or dead? What does that mean? How does this relate to other inflection points that group of groups have had in the past? And at least for me, so my, my nephew was visiting Washington, D.C., where I live, and I got the alert when we were actually out, weirdly, looking at the Declaration of Independence at the National Archives. And I was like, okay, we have to go home. I need to call Trisha. This is the most important thing. But Trish, you were in an airport, right? Yes, I'm coming um, to this conversation from India. And when um, the news broke about Zawahiri being killed, I was at the airport in Dulles. 
out of my way. And my reaction was, finally. I mean, especially as uh, both of us have worked in the U.S. government um, on counterterrorism efforts, Zawahiri has obviously been a high-profile target for a long time. And the persistent rumors of whether he was sick or dead or alive. And so there's been this element of uncertainty. But then, of course, the news that he was killed in Kabul in particular was, uh, at least to me, not a surprise. It was a disappointment, of course, but not a surprise. Um, it seems almost like a fitting end uh, for Zawahiri. So, uh, yeah, I think my main reaction was finally. <laughs> a fitting end, and for me, a really sort of interesting coda of, of what the last 20 years have looked like, right? In some ways, we're sort of back where we started of the Taliban's retakeover of Afghanistan, resurgence, you know, of, of various groups hosting Al-Qaeda. And so in many ways, it is it is not surprising, but it is really demoralizing. It's really sad that this is the reality of where we are. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, I, I think that's a really important point to make, uh, that to 2022... The Taliban in power in Afghanistan, harboring al-Qaeda leaders, feels familiar, unfortunately familiar, given the 20 years of, of blood, treasure, and strategic attention that we devoted to the country. Given that, um, you know, and I think the the quite natural impulse from a lot of people who devoted much of their professional lives toward this problem set in this part of the world to sort of say that was really painful and we're trying to sort of move on. Did you sense that there was... Uh, we published an article recently uh, where the author described the sort of policymaking community's response as kind of a shoulder shrug, like, you know, maybe not nowhere near the sort of um, um, uh, reaction that we saw when bin Laden was killed in, in 2011. Is that, you know, is that sense, is that your sense too, that, that maybe the, the, the reaction in the CT policy community was a bit muted because of the scar tissue that had built up over, you know, some, some very difficult uh, experiences in Afghanistan? I sometimes think about the experience of, of people who worked on these issues, especially in Afghanistan, is almost like we're having a post-traumatic reaction to it. And so there was that sense of relief that Zawahiri was killed there. But there's also this seems to be a pretty intense instinct within the, especially the higher levels of the U.S. government, to not want to talk about Afghanistan, um, to really put it in the rear view. Um, and with it, a lot of the focus on counterterrorism. So I think Zawahiri, the reaction to Zawahiri's death captures sort of the broader mood in Washington about the strategic priorities and the, the desire to sort of move on from uh, the conflict in Afghanistan, from the focus on counterterrorism. Um, so in a way, I think it was very, it, it, it captured something that we all, all, all people who worked on this all felt that way. This, this trend has been occurring for some time, but it really encapsulated that in a very distinct moment. I, I totally agree. And I think the mood, if anything, if I were to characterize it, was almost one of exhaustion, right? Sort of exhaustion from the fallout of Afghanistan, exhaustion from this, this 20 year engagement. And so I think this strategic moment in 2022 feels so different to me than the death of bin Laden you know, a decade earlier, right? And so we're now existing with a backdrop in which the threats that we face from terrorist organizations, I would argue, are more diffuse, more complex, these really dynamic linkages between domestic organizations and states and, and transnational terrorist organizations. We're existing at this moment of heightened political polarization. And so what I think the challenge is right now in 2022 is that we have all of this diversity of threats, the complexity of threats, 
but fewer resources to spend on these threats and sort of uh, less of a willingness at the topmost levels to afford counterterrorism the place that it was previously, right? So in 2011, think about the backdrop, you know, all of the hopefulness that emerged as a result of the Arab Spring. Do you all remember that, right? This idea that like, that protest would achieve what, what violence hadn't before. And so bin Laden's death emerges at that backdrop. And similar to when other terrorist founders died, there is this sort of temptation, I think, to write the obituary for the organization, right? If you go back and look at all those editorials in 2011, it's this idea that maybe the movement's ending, right? Maybe this is really the death knell for the organization. And I think this inflection point feels very, very different than the inflection point when bin Laden had been killed a decade ago. There's a, there's a lot. I'm glad you foreshadowed a, a lot of the things that I kind of want to ask you about uh, throughout the course of this conversation. Before that, though, I do want to get to these sort of five leadership traits that they came up in the article that we published, but they're also sort of form the centerpiece of, of, of your book, Terror and Transition, Leadership and Succession uh, in Terrorist Organizations. Can you briefly sort of describe these five categories uh, and then maybe also, you know, tell me, you know, what was bin Laden? Which category, which bin would you put bin Laden in? Which bin would you put Zawahiri in as well? Absolutely. So in our book, Terror in Transition, Trish and I spend a lot of time looking at terrorist founders. And the primary reason for this is that leadership is one of those things that we find is maybe talked about too much and often not talked about enough. And in the case of terrorism studies, we find that leadership is often treated in the context of these sort of large end studies that look at the effects of decapitation, or leadership is examined in the realms of these small sort of singular profiles of individual leaders. And what we wanted to do was to look at leadership in the in-between. And so this book actually emerged out of an article that we had written in Studies in Conflict and Terrorism that looked at, would we have seen this very public rupture between al-Qaeda and the Islamic State if bin Laden were still alive, right? So we did a counterfactual analysis looking at, in fact, the, the effects of bin Laden's leadership. And that really kicked off our interest in leadership more broadly. And so the book looks at, from a starting point, what does the founder do, right? What is the role of a founder? What do they do? And then how does every successor position themselves relative to the founder? And so we argue from the starting point that what founders do is that they create the how and the why for the organization. And our work really built off and, and grew out of work that was done in the social movement literature, in theological studies, actually in sports management that writes a lot about leadership and founders of organizations, and also from political science. But largely from the social movement literature, this idea that what founders do is they craft the how, which means how do you want to achieve your goals? In, far, in terms of tactics, in terms of resource mobilization, how do you recruit? How do you raise money? What are the means that you use? And founders also craft a why. You know, what is the reason for being? What is the sort of founding frame that you use to explain the group to the members? And again, we think that this is a framework that extends not just within terrorism studies. Founders in many organizations craft the how and the why. And then each successor pivots themselves and positions themselves relative to that founder's frames. And so, for example, we have successors who don't substantially change the how or the why. We call these the caretakers. And what caretakers do is that they make only sort of incremental changes to the how and the why, but largely they keep things going the way that the founder would have intended, the way the founder had crafted the organization. Then we have fixers. And what fixers do is that they change the how in a dramatic sense. 
So this could look like introducing suicide tactics if that was not previously part of the repertoire or moving into a completely different area for um, developing funding for, for recruiting members in a way that had not been scoped by the founder. So the fixers change the how, but they don't change the why. They keep the why sort of what the founder would have intended. Then the third categorization that we have are signalers. So signalers change the why, that, that reason for being, that frame, but they don't dramatically change the how. And so this could look like, for example, pledging to a larger organization, becoming part of Al-Qaeda, becoming part of ISIS. So changing that sort of reason for being, that frame for the organization. Then our fourth group, so we have caretakers are the first, fixers, signalers. The fourth group are the visionaries. And the visionaries dramatically change the how and the why. And these leaders tend to reflect a lot of division in the group, or they could also introduce a lot of division into the organization insofar as they are moving in a dramatic sense from what the founder had originally crafted. The fifth leadership type we put up, and these are called figureheads, and these are leaders who don't actively choose either change or continuity with those founding frames and the founding why, excuse me, founding how. And the reason for that is many. One could be simply that they are in prison and that they are unable to really make any changes to the how and the why. One could be that they are ill, right? That they are suffering from some sort of health issue. And so as a result, they are not able to. And so that figurehead that's a terrorist group that's sort of like a ship without a captain, right? They, they are, they're somewhat leaderless. And so what we found in the course of our research, so John, I'm glad you asked the question about bin Laden. We didn't actually code founders. So founders do not fit into one of the five frames. Those are successor frames. For us, all founders, their, their function, what they do is that they craft the how and the why, and that all the other successors position themselves relative to that founding, that founding how and why. What we did find in the case of Al-Qaeda, for example, is that Zawahiri was a archetypal caretaker, right? So to a large extent, he derived a lot of his legitimacy because of his position relative to bin Laden in the first place, right? He'd been, Laden, he'd been bin Laden's longtime deputy. This is an individual to whom he had pledged, he had, he had formally merged with when he was the leader of his previous group, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. And one of the sort of characteristics of a caretaker is that often there are familial linkages or this idea that authority and prestige and legitimacy are passed down between the founder and that individual who's the caretaker. This is very much the case with regards to Zawahiri. What's interesting to note, though, is that an individual can change successor types over the course of their tenure, or they can actually be different leadership types in different terrorist organizations. And so Zawahiri's personality is not changing over the course of his lifetime, right? This is an individual who a close scan of all those obituaries that came out a few months ago all agree on these core tenets of his personality, right? This is not someone, what, what did Peter Bergen say, right? This is not someone you would want to sit next to at a Thanksgiving dinner, right? He's disputatious. He is withdrawn. He's disagreeable. Those core tenets of his personality do not change. And part of the reason I mentioned that is because the leadership types have nothing to do with personality. They don't necessarily have to do with charisma. They have to do with how you lead and the choices that you make as a leader. And so, for example, towards the end of his tenure at EIJ, he was a visionary. He had pulled the organization so far away 
from the original blueprint that Farage had established for the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which was one of toppling the Islamic regime at home. Zawahiri moves far away from that and moves that founding frame to the frame closer to what bin Laden had for, for al-Qaeda, this vision of you know, toppling the far enemy first. And so we say this because it's important. I think there's often a sort of fixation on the personality of the leader, right? Sort of what their essential traits or characteristics are. But that's actually much less important than the way in which they lead and the choices that they make when they become the successor. And so Zawahir is a great example of having previously been a visionary, but then in his role as the leader for a decade of al-Qaeda, played the role of a caretaker. And returning to your point about the reaction to Zawahiri's death, I think it did capture this broader moment that we were talking about, but I think it also captures the nature of a caretaker. They aren't the kind of leader that you're going to see the big sort of splash when they're killed because they are sort of that le- with that level of continuity. They aren't leaders who are making big changes. They aren't leaders who are necessarily um, shaking things up in a significant way in an organization. And so while I think we have captured something broader in the reaction to Zawahiri's death, I think that's also sort of the plight, if you will, of caretakers. And those are typical leaders to follow founders. It's very hard to come after a founder and make these big changes. So in some ways, Zawahiri was fitting into that role and the reaction to his death also reflects the kind of uh, leadership role he took in Al-Qaeda. Especially when he had spent so long as a number two, it's hard to step up to the big chair after that, and you know, and sort of take on this this mantle of change uh, when you've been, uh, you know, part of this sort of consistency for a long time. I do want to kind of ask you, you know, if if we look at kind of the series of inflection points uh, throughout Al-Qaeda's history from its founding, you know, sort of coming out of the uh, the the uh, anti-Soviet jihad in, in Afghanistan uh, through to, you know, the 1990s when it started kind of communicating uh, this more universal um, operational outlook, ideology uh, to the, you know, the attacks in 98 and in, in, um, in the, the MBC attacks in East Africa, USS coal bombing, 9-11 obviously is a major inflection point, bin Laden's death and now Zawahiri's death. Does the fact that bin Laden was in charge from you know, from the beginning as the founder, like you said, through his death in 2011 and was replaced by a caretaker, uh, a leader that you characterize as a caretaker. Does that mean that fundamentally the how and why, if we look at Al-Qaeda in the early and mid-1990s and we look at them, you know, right up to Zawahiri's death, that that how and the why have remained remarkably sort of static throughout the course of almost three decades? I would say yes and no, actually, because founders can, can can shape the how and why over time and have it change. I don't think that bin Laden was in the mid-1980s, you know, or late 1980s when he formed Al-Qaeda, was the same leader that he was when he died in 2011. So I think that um, one of the things that we sort of credit founders with doing is creating a foundation, but over the time of creating that foundation, they can make moves on the how and the why. And I think bin Laden would be an example of that as a leader who evolved over time as the founder of Al-Qaeda. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to overstate the idea of uh, a lack of evolution within the organization. I think in some ways it's an organization that evolved in surprising ways, right? It didn't conduct its first major terrorist attack for basically 10 years. That's pretty unusual for an organization. Um, and it's unusual to have a founder as long as Al-Qaeda did. 
So Al Qaeda in some ways is, is exceptional and um, not in a complimentary way, but is an exception in, in the way that it evolved over time and sort of how bin Laden um, formed the organization and led the organization in the duration with which he did so. And I just want to echo that. I think at various points in the trajectory, and I think it's really helpful to talk about the sort of long arc of Al Qaeda. I think the way that bin Laden mastered that transition after 9-11 to take this organization that in many ways is a sort of lumbering behemoth, you know, on the eve of the attacks of 9-11 and to transform it, you know, into a much more decentralized, fragmented, I think the survival of Al-Qaeda after 9-11 is really, and again, not in a complimentary way, as Trisha said, it's really a testament, I think, to bin Laden's leadership and having that sort of malleability of the how and the why to be able to communicate to the followers that this transition from the sort of centralized bureaucracy, this large system into a much more decent, something much more akin to what its name actually means, that in, in our assessment is him responding to that counterterrorism moment. Where I do think there has been consistency is that I think the Al-Qaeda of 2022 reflects a lot of the strategic goals and priorities that bin Laden had in 2011. And so one of the points that we make in the book is that if bin Laden had still been alive, you know, at the beginning of the summer, he likely would have been happy with, with the state of the organization, right? This is, this is an organization that even though it is losing adherence, even though it is sort of struggling to gain global attention, it is an organization that, you know, has expanded, expanded into far-flung reaches of the globe. And it is also an organization that was able to keep somewhat of a fairly low profile so that ISIS was able to soak up a lot of that counterterrorism pressure, right? You know, Zawahiri issued the invocation against mass casualty attacks in Europe precisely so that ISIS would become the focal point of global counterterrorism pressure. And so exactly to Trisha's point, I've been Laden not being the same leader when he died. I think there's a tremendous evolution over the course of his lifetime in no small part responding to all of the different counterterrorism pressure points, but that there has been a remarkable sort of alignment of Zawahiri's strategic priorities, his how and the why, compared to what bin Laden had established decades earlier. I think um, exceptional is a great right is the right word to describe. I think the the shared degree of strategic patience uh, and long term vision that both bin Laden and Zawahiri seemed to embody in ways that certainly their counterparts in ISIS did not, um, which, as you said, meant that they received a great deal more counterterrorism pressure. Uh, over a course of several years, and 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 the organization suffered deeply in ways that Al Qaeda didn't because of that. If we, um, you know, if we look at all of the sort of, there are lots of different ways that you can kind of look at a terrorist organization and measure its change or sort of assess its change. One is by you know looking at the the sort of characters, as you said, of of the leaders, particularly those that follow the founders. Others are in terms of the types of attacks, the types of tactics they use, the types of targets they choose, uh, the themes that they emphasize in their in their media and propaganda. Um, you know, there there's the the list is sort of endless. When you looked at all of those other ways, um, did that did your findings sort of reinforce your your hypothesis that that the 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 category of successor, the category of leader that takes over from a founder or that takes over from a previous leader, does in fact determine the degree of consistency in their operations, in their how and their why, as you put it, uh, as compared or as you know, is this in fact the did it reinforce your view that this is in fact the driving force? I think that you raise an interesting point that I don't think either Liz or I 
although she can certainly speak for herself, would say that leaderships are the leadership is the end all be all of an organization. Um, I think what we did want to explore was particularly for religiously oriented terrorist organizations. What is the role of a leader? Because leaders do take on this higher stature in religious organizations in particular. So while we certainly did draw from other literatures, as Liz was talking about earlier, on the other hand, we're not talking about maybe some of the leftist organizations or ethno-nationalist organizations, because I'm not, we, we did not explore, and I'm not sure analytically, that the leaders would have the same um, sort of central role in, in, in forming an organization. But it was interesting because when Liz and I were creating the types, we initially had the four types, and then we realized we're overemphasizing leaders. Sometimes leaders are not the driving force when you manipulate the how and the why. There is this category of figureheads where leaders are not the driving force of the organization, especially in an environment where leadership decapitation has a, a significant degree of continuity across U.S. government administrations, across you know autocracies, democracies. Leadership decapitation is a, is a widely uh, used tactic. And so we also wanted to recognize that leaders are not necessarily the end-all be-all. Um, there are times when they are, and, and I think we found more often than we thought their leaders were driving a lot of the changes. There were less figureheads than we expected. But I do think we both want to, you know, not overemphasize leaders and how central they are, especially for organizations that are under a lot of counterterrorism pressure. That's exactly right, Trish. And I, one of the points that we stressed in our implication section and policymaking recommendations is that we are not simply saying target the leaders, right? In, in fact, one of the findings of our book and one of the initial points that kicked us off in this investigation is this idea that the decapitation literature is replete with confusion, you know, conflicting answers, different ways that things are measured. And one of our arguments for why that is the case is that a lot of the stories about decapitation actually have assumptions underneath them about leaders' impact on the how and the why, right? So if there's an argument about that taking out the leader has some impact on let's say that tactic that the, the leader had chosen, right, had, had moved towards, that is a comment about the how. And so partly we, we think that leadership targeting is one element of a comprehensive CT strategy. But the other point that I would mention, John, that I think is important here is that we also wanted to look at where the group is situated in society. So, for example, one of the case studies that we examined was the case of the second clan that was active in the United States starting from 1915 to about 1927. That is a case, quite frankly, in which targeting the leader would have had zero impact, right? Because this is an organization that is not operating on the fringes of society. In fact, it was etched into the halls of power, right? You had individuals in the second clan who were in Congress, individuals who were in state and local leadership. And so where the organization is situated as far as society is important as well with regards to the question about how much the leader matters and then the question about whether or not the removal of that leader will actually have a consequential outcome. You know, the, um, I kind of want to ask a very simple question, which is how was Zawahiri selected as a leader? But more fundamentally, I guess the question that I want to ask is when a, when a new leader takes over from a previous leader, um, it's reflective of the dynamics that that drive it. In a democracy, it's reflective of public sentiment. In a criminal organization or you know a, a, a drug cartel, it's reflective of 
who holds the most power and the the capability to inflict violence on uh, on other parties to 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 sort of grab hold of uh, of power. What are the what are the drivers that led Zawahiri to being the successor? And are those still the same drivers that will ultimately determine who replaces him? Um, I think it was Craig Whiteside, um, Ferraro Abram, who wrote this really interesting piece on how the Islamic State actually has created sort of a process in an almost very bureaucratic way of how succession will be undertaken. And in part, that's because it's had to do it a lot. And I don't think Al-Qaeda has created that kind of um, explicit process because it hasn't experienced leadership losses often as a, a, most other organizations would just a couple of, uh, of exceptions, especially post 9-11. And so I think one of the things that is a little bit surprising is given how much there was speculation about Zawahiri's death, how long it's taking Al-Qaeda to identify a successor. And it took longer than we sort of thought it should. You know, a lot of analysts thought it should to name Zawahiri, who was, you know, the obvious choice. Um, so, you know, Al-Qaeda is known for being pretty deliberative about this. It does seem to be uh, intent on having buy-in from, from probably the affiliates, from, you know, members of the, the highest leadership council in the organization. And that's probably not easy in the counterterrorism environment. But I suspect it also wants to be able to present a leader and, and have it be pretty uh, uniform and unified behind that individual. But I don't think we have the same kind of clarity as we did when Zawahiri was taking over. And I'm not sure that's entirely a weakness. Um, you know, there's plenty of organizations that um, I've worked on over the years that the person who has announced as a successor is sort of a surprise to everyone, maybe not even very well known. And they end up being pretty effective leaders. Um, so Zawahiri in some ways was an exception in being so firmly situated as bin Laden's deputy as his successor in a deal that was basically pre-cooked back in, you know, 2001. Um, so I don't think that Al-Qaeda has the same kind of process. Um, I think it could ultimately be a weakness, but I think it's almost too soon to say if it, if it will be or not. Because the Islamic State has followed this process, but it, not all of its successors are created equal, even though they have this, right. this process. And so, they've lost so many. They've lost so many successors, right? Exactly to Trisha's point. They have this sort of bureaucratized succession plan because they've needed to. I mean, it is almost remarkable that Al-Qaeda has had so few leadership successions. And so one of the groups that we studied in the book that Trish is very well poised to talk about is the case of Al-Shabaab that has twice chosen a dark horse successor, right? So first with the choice of Ghodani in 2007, right? Which I think was a surprise to many, even within the community. And then with the choice of Abu Ubaidah again. And so I think there's always that sort of, almost sort of game show quality of like, who's going to be the next successor for Al-Qaeda, right? And I think it's really too soon to tell. What I have sort of been thinking and what we have chatted about before is, given that this is an organization that is now at an inflection point, right? Given that this is an organization that might need to regain some of that sort of global oxygen in the jihadist movement, it might be well-suited. It might be a time to have a visionary, right? A leader that could sort of move away from the how and the why, be able to attract newer, younger followers, right? To be able to then sort of regain that space in the global, global landscape. And so that it might be a well-positioned time for a visionary when after bin Laden's death, it was clearly not going to be that right moment. Does that make it easier to do uh, given 
you know, where we are now, 30 plus years on from the founding, that it could be somebody from this second generation of Al-Qaeda members who weren't instrumental in its, you know, in its early years, who weren't maybe even instrumental in, you know, the 9-11 attacks and, and, and that sort of era. Does that make it more likely? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. And I think part of the reason that there's been such a movement around Saif al-Adil is that he is one of these longtime members, right? You know, this, this, veteran Egyptian fighter, an individual who opposed the attacks of 9-11. He's been around for the duration for the last 30 years. But is he someone that could inspire and motivate and get new younger followers to join? I don't know. I don't know. And I know Sarah Harmouche had a really compelling piece in War on the Rocks a few weeks ago that was essentially going through what is it that Al-Qaeda does need now and she makes the argument that it might be the point to look to somebody, for example, not from the Arab world, right? To look to, to Khan, the former security um, security member of Al-Qaeda's uh, Black Guard, as maybe the person that is well poised to, to assume this role. I think the one thing that I would add is, I think a visionary is best positioned to revitalize Al-Qaeda, but that doesn't necessarily indicate a visionary will appear. And so one of the things that Liz and I sort of studiously avoided was the discussion of effectiveness, which was sort of the prominent discussion after Zawahiri died. Was he an effective leader or was he not? And we sort of said, like, we're not, we're stepping out of this debate. What we're arguing is that there's types and arguably there are effective caretakers and ineffective caretakers, right? And you can have a caretaker when you need a visionary. So I wouldn't want to... Um, sort of overly prescribe what kind of leader will come next from Al-Qaeda because some of that will will depend on um, other factors beyond what the group needs. Um, I think that the group probably needs a visionary, but that doesn't mean that maybe who appears. You may very well have another caretaker who just wants to survive, you know, in Afghanistan or something like that. So I think, I think in a lot of ways it's a wild card. And I think the thing that gives me hesitation is for so many organizations, they reach these points where you basically think they're, they're effectively... Um, no longer really a threat. We have not exactly written the obituary of organizations, but a lot of organizations, the Islamic State in Iraq, the Taliban, um, Al-Shabaab, and these groups have a tremendous capacity for resurgence. And I would be reluctant to underestimate that on Al-Qaeda with as mature of an organization as it is. Um, I think in order to really revitalize in a meaningful way, it will have to make significant adjustments. I don't think the blueprint that bin Laden created is really feasible or as compelling in this environment. But I do think that there is a scenario in which there is a, a visionary who manages to remold the organization. Um, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say if I was betting that that was what was going to happen. But it's the thing I'm the most worried about. And I just want to echo that. We, in the course of our book, studied 33 groups. And often we would say these are times in which the group should have picked a fixer, right? Or should have picked a visionary. And time and time again, that that wasn't the leader that ended up taking over the group, right? To to the detriment often of the group, for example. And so exactly to Trisha's point, I think the prescription game is a difficult one to be in, particularly with a group that does not have the succession plan in place like Al-Qaeda. Is it... Um... It strikes me that, especially with a with an organization that you know, I hesitate to use the word conservative because it can mean so many different things. But given their sort of long term vision and their strategic patience, there might be a hesitance or a hesitation to you know, a visionary is risky, um, a caretaker is safe. 
you know, does it make it more likely that even if what they need is a visionary, because they do have to compete with ISIS now that the, you know, that, that they do need maybe some rejuvenation that is there, is it like, is it easier to pick a caretaker because it's low risk than a visionary, which, you know, there's a lot of risk, you know, you could do a lot of damage to your brand, the reputation that you built up, um, uh, you know, the equity that you sort of built up with, with jihadists around the world over the course of decades. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I am a poker player. So I would say if I was a betting, uh, putting bets on this, I would bet for a caretaker. Um, I think in general, caretakers, uh, terrorist groups are more conservative um, in like they, that they want continuity, that they stick with the same tactics and they, they don't like disruptive change. Um, then we often think of them as because they are in many ways revolutionary actors. But I think with a founder who looms as large as Bin Laden, over the organization and over the movement, that a visionary will be a very difficult um, to uh, be a visionary that revitalizes the organization rather than divides it, especially, would be a very tall task. And so if I was going to sort of put odds on what kind of leader will come next, I would bet on a caretaker um, as the most likely option. Um, and, and in some ways, the least worrisome option, because I don't think a caretaker is positioned to revitalize the organization to be a major threat to U.S. national security. It will continue to be a threat, but more of a regional, local um, kind of threat than, a, than a, a major threat to the U.S. homeland. We saw a large number of caretakers in the sample that we looked at. And so we looked at more than 100 different leadership transitions. And just as Trisha echoed earlier, disproportionately, we saw after founders, the caretakers took over. And again, this, of course, was much of the thinking, just as Trisha mentioned, about you know, the, the tendency towards repetition, the tendency towards conservatism of terrorist groups generally. I also think thinking about the world in which Al-Qaeda is now in is an important question. Um, you know, thinking about the Islamic State in Afghanistan, thinking about tensions with Iran. And so exactly to Trisha's point, even though they might need a visionary, it might not be a visionary who emerges. Well, I think to kind of wrap up the conversation, I want to zoom out and and kind of explore why this is important uh, from a policymaking perspective, from a from a scholarly perspective. You know the um, the the world, the strategic landscape uh, that existed when Zawahiri was killed was fundamentally different than the one that when Bin Laden was killed. Um, you know, there are a lot more sort of competitors for resources and 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 strategic attention and. Um, and what have you now. And so people are still trying to figure out, I think, you know, where does counterterrorism fit in, you know, in a world where we're trying to, you know, compete with China and counter Russian aggression in Ukraine and do all these different things. Um, it strikes me that understanding this framework is a good way of sort of, sort of calibrating um, counterterrorism policy toward the group going forward. Is that the primary sort of value that you see in, in, in this kind of paradigm? Oh, I love this question. And I think it was so it was so informative to write a book about terrorist leadership against the backdrop of all of these diverse threats magnifying and amplifying and growing more mm. complex. And so for us, I mean, <laughs> we submitted this book manuscript on January 10th, right? So we submitted it four days after the attack on the U.S. Mm. Capitol. And then later in 2021, you have the terrible pullout from Afghanistan. And so to write the book against the backdrop of what I would say are these two really dynamic drivers and impacts on the state of counterterrorism writ large. For me, one of the take-homes of this book 
And Trisha and I think about this a lot because Trisha and I both entered the government after 9-11, right? This is, I would say, the sort of animating cause of our lives. This is what we have dedicated our professional, you know, many cases, sort of personal efforts towards. And I think that failure to prioritize counterterrorism, and we fully recognize, right, that the diversification of threats on the landscape right now, but that failure to prioritize counterterrorism gives adversaries the space to grow. And not taking seriously or sort of relegating lower these threats from al-Qaeda, these threats from the Islamic State, these threats from far right, far left, from, from nationalist organizations, it's really dangerous. It's really, really dangerous. Now, for our perspective, we think that it is important to consider the type of leader that is being faced in a counterterrorism policy. Right? So is, is it a caretaker being faced? Is it a fixer? Is it a signaler? Is it a visionary? Because I think failure to understand that type of leader is a failure to really then tailor the counterterrorism, the appropriate counterterrorism approach against that group. Hmm. There's just two things that I would add to that. And, and one of them is when you're working in an environment with more scarce resources and the counterterrorism sort of community has not been used to working in an environment of scarce resources, there's going to have to be a shift in how we think about things like which groups to prioritize, which leaders to prioritize. And I think that Liz and I wanted to contribute to that conversation. It's certainly not the last word on it. Um, as, as we said, there, there is, I think, additional analysis to be done about when you have a caretaker, but a group needs a visionary, et cetera. And those kinds of things could help inform um, you know, some of those, those policy decisions. So I think that, that that's one of the things we wanted to contribute to. And I think the other thing to constantly remember about counterterrorism is, well, I, I don't disagree with the uh, shift to focusing on China um, more and the reprioritization of counterterrorism. I, I don't disagree with that. But counterterrorism has the ability, or I should say terrorism has the ability to derail those strategic priorities. A major terrorist attack in the United States, especially one that comes from an external actor, will, will once again demand the attention of policymakers and the U.S. public. And so in a way, you have to maintain a certain level of counterterrorism pressure and counterterrorism vigilance in order to pursue those broader strategic objectives, um, those, those strategic near-peer competition or you know great power competition, however you want to think about it. So there is a little bit, I think, of a danger of the pendulum swinging away from counterterrorism too much. And while I agree with the reprioritization overall, I still feel a little bit concerned that, the, that, that there has been sort of a turn away from counterterrorism to a degree that, that doesn't really reflect the state of the broader, especially Sunni jihadist movement, which has evolved. It certainly has changed, especially in terms of the threat to the homeland, but it is, it is very alive and well in parts of the world, such as Africa, and has the ability to research in South Asia. So I, I remain very concerned, I think, about that threat and that we have ways to analytically think about it and inform policy, given the change in the environment. Trish, I think that is such an excellent point. And something I think about all the time are the ways in which terrorist organizations are going to use a lot of these existing other transnational issues as a way to recruit, as a way to develop new resources, right? So looking at the dynamic intersections, for example, between food insecurity and how that will play into terrorist recruitment or water management in the Himalayas and the ways in which that amplifies existing tensions and can drive continuing chaos, instability, drive towards terrorist group uh, membership as well. And so I think in 2022, there's a danger in sort of having the pendulum swing back. I also think there's a danger in siloing these threats 
and overlooking the intersections between all of them as well. Yeah, it doesn't, you know, terrorism and, and by extension, counterterrorism doesn't exist in a vacuum. It does tie into all of these different things, including some things that we don't think about. And so I think taking this conversation where we're talking about leadership succession in a group like Al-Qaeda and, and sort of ending by putting it in that broader context and, and sort of encouraging listeners to think about those those interconnections is uh, is a wonderful way to end the conversation. So Liz and Trisha, I want to thank you both for, for taking some time and, and chatting with me today. Thank you, John, for having us. Thank you so much, John. It was a delight to be here with you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or any other app, if you're enjoying it, please give it a rating or leave a review. It really does help us to reach new listeners. Thanks again.